Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Thanks for joining us on Rational in Portland. Today I have Tiana Tozer in the studio. Tiana, you'll remember, was the lead plaintiff in the Americans with Disabilities Act case against the city because, of course, our sidewalks have not been ADA compliant. If anybody's been paying attention to the city of Portland in a very, very long time, Tiana, welcome. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. So before we pressed record, we were talking about charter reform, and I've been looking at your Twitter and seeing that you're very active in the movement to amend charter reform. Um, Tell me what your thoughts are about that and, and kind of what the rationale is. I have serious concerns about, first of all, the entire process. Like, how are these people selected? What are their qualifications? And the fact that they came out with a form of government that doesn't exist anywhere in the United States, in any city, should be disconcerting to any rational person. Because, you know, we've had the wheel for years, and nobody's like, gosh, you know, I really need to invent the wheel. And so one has to wonder how and why that happened. What should also be disconcerting is how many people have resigned from that commission and why they resigned, which we don't know. And none of our investigated reporters, air quotes, have even looked into that. So I also think what bothers me about it is now that it's being questioned, there's this, no, you have to accept it the way it is. So I think what happened with charter reform is they gave us, everybody wanted change because it's not working. We're all frustrated. But they were gave us one piece of change, and so everybody voted for it, and it may not be the right change. As a matter of fact, it isn't the right change. Yeah, I, I feel very strongly in the exact same vein, anybody who's been listening to the show knows that, you know, I'm not a journalist and I just talk to people about my opinions and I talk to people and then I form opinions based on who I talk to and based on the conversations that I had with Alyssa Pishka and Vadim Mazirsky, who resigned from the Charter Commission, it was clear to me that this, and and Sonia Montabano, who worked for Ulysses PAC uh, in favor of Mingus Maps' alternative plan, which I was really hoping to see on the ballot uh, if charter reform failed, and I was hoping that it would. I think, I I feel the same way that you do. Um, How did you end up coming to that conclusion? I mean, Obviously, a lot of people, I think, didn't do a ton of research, and they're learning just now about why people like Renee Gonzalez and, and Dan Ryan are, are bringing up these amendments on city council. So what did you, what was it that you read, or what, who was it that you talked to that when you learned, okay, this is not a good plan? I think what 
bothers me the most is that they 72% of voters wanted to vote on the measures one by one. And yeah, they wanted them separated out. They wanted them separated out. So why did the will of the voters not matter then? And now all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's the will of the voters, which actually it's not the will of the voters. If there was 67% turnout and it passed by 58%, that's only like 39% of the voters. And also, I think that any time you have a commission and any time you have leadership and you're trying to change something and you want it to be better, you should welcome questions. You should welcome pushback. You should welcome different ideas. And it feels like otherwise it's not about Portland and what's best for Portland. It's about your own personal agenda. And this really, truly feels agenda driven and that should that should be disconcerting for everyone. In addition, so the 72% is the number one reason because why didn't okay, so why does the will of the voters now when it didn't ma- matter now when it didn't matter then? And second of all, this is going to cost millions more. Okay. If you get an estimate to have something on your house done and it comes up so much more expensive than you imagined. Could you imagine if you couldn't turn that down? (laughs) That would be ridiculous. So voters should have another chance to look at this and look at the price tag and really evaluate. And the fact that the Charter Commission and these groups are so against it should really raise red flags for Portlanders. There is something going on here and we don't know what it is. But man, something stinks. What do you think is going on here? I, you know, I don't know. What I want to know is I want to know. It it feels like it's agenda driven. Uh, I have serious concerns about Avalos. I have serious concerns about her. and, And I don't think she has a vision for Portland. I think she has a vision for herself. I think this is not about what's best for Portland. I think it's about her future and what is best for her. And I think that is a big, huge red flag. What brings you to that assumption or that thought? Because what did she get? 9% of the vote against Rubio? Yeah. Okay. Well, she can get elected with 9% of the vote now. Well, that's my, that's my understanding. Although nobody seems to be honest about that. I mean, when Willamette Week did, they did some pretty good reporting right before Charter went on the ballot. And they said that the Charter Commission couldn't even tell you what the floor of the percentage of votes were to win. And that they were saying it was 25%, which was actually wrong because of the single transferable vote concept, which no one can seem to explain. And the single transferable vote, my understanding is, is the only thing that pushes us into the territory that gets us below that 25% floor, which would be part of a normal ranked choice voting. Is that how you understand it? I'm a political science major and I barely I understand yeah. it. And I'm like, <laughs> I am wow. Too. And, and, and I guess like for me, why? Why ranked choice voting? And, and let's step back for a minute here. Okay, so... George Soros has been pushing money into Portland politics for years, and he's been using us as a guinea pig. Well, let's talk about that because you have a background. I think it's important that everybody know you have a background in Portland politics. A lot of people might not know that, but tell us what your background is and what you've what you've done. 
When I first moved to Portland, I worked as a consultant and I worked on bond measures. Uh, I worked on education and outreach campaigns. I worked with the sheriff of Multnomah County on my own time. I worked with the DA's office to pass victims' rights. I've worked on forfeiture laws. I've just been involved in in the political scene, in uh, victims' rights. I have sat on a ton of committees. I used to do outreach to the homeless youth. Um, really, truly just involved in, in the way I would say that Avalos is probably involved n- now. Um, you, you had a, a profile. Yeah, I just had my f- fingers on a lot of things and was really involved in the city of Portland and its future, volunteered on campaigns, went to a lot of events. Yes, just just was involved politically in what was going on and also have pushed back against some measures, fought for some measures, won some, lost one, like on victims' rights. We wanted it to go. There were I can't remember how many there were at the time. We wanted it to go as a slate on the ballot. And they pushed back and they said no. And so people, the voters, passed some and rejected others. And that's what the Portland Charter Commission didn't want. They wanted the whole thing or nothing. And only I think that was smart. I think that was really smart because they knew, I think they knew that people wanted geographic. Sonia Montalbano broke this down when she was on the show too, when she was from uh, Mingus Maps's political action, uh, politi- PAC, political action committee, Ulysses PAC. Um, she, they, of course they were promoting Mingus's alternative plan. He ran for city council, as you know, on charter reform. And he had, he studied this. He's got a PhD in government from Cornell, He knows something about how to set up a government. And she said that it seemed like people wanted geographical representation, not as many commissioners. And this this ranked choice voting thing has got to be separated. And the single transferable vote has got to be separated. And like you said, they had done, now we know they had done polling. And that's what people wanted, but they ignored it. Exactly. Because they, I think they knew that they wouldn't get the full package that they wanted with all the weirdo stuff that nobody can explain, like single transferable vote. Yeah, so you there's an agenda behind that. There's an agenda to get certain people on the council to try and push certain narratives. And that should make that should make everyone really nervous, particularly because isn't the funding for ranked choice voting, isn't that coming from out of state? I just read that. My understanding is the Sightline Institute, which I think is in Seattle, and I'll link to this in the show notes, but I'll, I will confirm and link to this in the show notes. And I learned that, I may have learned that from Vadim Mazirsky, that Sightline was helping to fund this ranked choice voting effort. So in the same way that Portland was a guinea pig for the drug Medical marijuana, yeah. Mm -hmm. For the Drug Policy Alliance, not just medical marijuana, but of course they start with that. So when they, when Drug Policy Alliance infiltrates your city, your state, they begin with medical marijuana, then they go to legal marijuana, they really massage you up. Then they go to decriminalization of drugs, and then they've been candid about this. The next step is injection sites. So that's what's coming to Oregon. They've gotten most of what they wanted. We're a great guinea pig for these people. And I think 
people see it from my, that we're the idiots that are going to vote for this garbage and income sightline with the rank choice voting. Right. So, I mean, Oregonians have a choice to make, particularly Portlanders. Do you want to continue to be people's guinea pigs? Do you want to continue to be part of these failed experiments? Or do you want to start educating yourself and getting out there and fighting for the Portland that we want to live in? And I'm done with being an experiment. I have been experimented on by Soros for years. You don't see him pushing money into Greece to do these things. He's doing his experiments in the United States on Americans. We'll talk about that. What do you mean um, you've been experimented on? Like, what else? Because the the entire drug thing, that was totally Soros pushed. He was funding the... The Drug Policy Alliance, yeah. That, but I also think he pushed money into... Opposing victims' rights, which, by the way... Oh, I didn't know that. Joanne Hardesty opposed victims' rights. Okay, well, so you helped lead the charge for victims' rights, so please talk about that. So we just wanted... Victims have sort of... Were the... Particularly now under Schmidt, we have no standing, and so we wanted to enshrine that in the Constitution. I don't know if I was particularly crazy on putting in the Constitution. And when you say Mike Schmidt, you mean our current DA, Mike Schmidt. Yeah, yeah. for those who don't live in Portland or may not know. Right. So I worked, uh, we formed a PAC, and we worked on seven... I think it was seven. I can't remember now. You know, the, the that you would be able to testify that if you were a convicted felon, you couldn't serve on a jury. Because, you know, I'll never serve on a jury as a victim. What I, was your pack called? I can't. You, you, you don't so think you'll ever ago. serve on a... So you were... I'm trying... Can you tell us your... Pers- are you comfortable telling us your personal story about how you became a victim? Sure. So in on May 14th, 1988... An intoxicated driver. I was a student down in Eugene. And, and I got to tell you, I had everything in the world going for me. Like, I was getting ready for summer. The rugby season had just gotten over. I'd been accepted to the University of Lyon. I was planning on an international career. And it was a beautiful spring day. And I managed to procrastinate because it was like the end of the end of the school year. And I had a lot of homework to do. I managed to procrastinate, not do any of it, until it was time to meet the women's rugby team at the men's alumni rugby game. And after the game, I made a really poor choice. I got in the backseat of my friend's car. None of us had been drinking, but I failed to put my seatbelt on. Now, before the whole everybody goes, well, she should have put her seatbelt on, there were no seatbelt laws. I was in a hurry. I don't think that one mistake should condemn you to being dead. No, that doesn't mean you get to be disabled for the rest of your life. The day you decide, for whatever reason, when you're at... 20 something or a teenager what 18 I was 20 okay I when just you're turned t- 20 so I mean your brain's not even fully developed till you're 25 anyways in the backseat of this car and we were headed up Harris Street in Eugene to get a croquet set and then we were going to our end of the season rugby party for some strange reason my rugby team liked to cross train and croquet this intoxicated driver came down 23rd broadsided the car I was in without the seatbelt restraint I was thrown out and run over by a 3,000 pound vehicle And I spent a month and three days in ICU and three months total in the hospital. To date, I've had 36 reconstructive surgeries. And the police came to see me when I was in ICU. And I was in ICU for a month and three days. And I was like, why are the police coming to see me? But they don't tell you. They don't tell you anything in ICU because you're just dealing with with too many things. But after I moved down to the fourth floor of the orthopedic unit, Officer Wilson came to see me again and told me that I'd been run over by an intoxicated driver. I was his third offense. He had a suspended license, no insurance. And um, 
it was funny because after he left the room, I said to my mom, I said, hand me the phone book. And I'm like looking through it. She's like, what are you looking for? And I said, the phone number for Mad. I'm going to call Mad. And so I called up Mad and I said to them, and I got this woman on the phone. I said, hi, my name's Tiana Toza. I've just learned that I've been run over by an intoxicated driver. I want to do something about this problem. May I please speak to the president? She was like, my name's Barb Steffler and I'm the president of Mad. And then uh, the next day, this quadriplegic in a wheelchair came to visit me. His name was Donnie. The last time he walked to his car was when he was high on marijuana and hit a mailbox and became a quadriplegic. And then I met Bob. Bob's a triple amputee and he'd been using drugs and alcohol and he and his brother hit a power line and they survived the crash. But when Bob got out to check it out, his left arm hit the power line and it blasted out his kneecaps. So I was speaking at the candlelight vigil that December and then I started speaking with Bob and Donnie at schools and they called it the Bob and Donnie show with special guest Tiana and... There's this whole thing about don't blame the victims, but back then we had guilty victims and innocent victims because, you know, Bob and Donnie would tell you that they made their own choices and that as disabled as they are now, it was never, they are less disabled than they were on drugs, you know, and that they did it to themselves, but that, you know, I was just minding my own business and it happened to me. So I started um, working on... um, Working on victims' rights, started speaking to young people. I started, you know, working around school about getting young people to think about not drinking and driving, which was weird because I was so young at the time, and I go out and talk to these high schools, and I look like a high school student myself. And in Oregon, we had a .08 law. Utah and Oregon had the .08 laws at the time, and the man who ran over me blew a .09. So then I started lobbying in Illinois and Idaho for the .08 law. Uh, in 1989, I got an internship to Congressman Stallings. He's a re- he's a Democrat in Idaho. He would have been a Republican in any other state. And I worked on the Hill, and I lobbied for the Americans with Disabilities Act. And senior year, I was also a member of the Associated Students of University of Oregon. And so I was just very politically active. So I think that's an absolutely incredible story. I'm so sorry about what happened to you. And obviously you've turned it into this incredible life that you have. Thank God you survived. You have also gone on to have that international career that you wanted. I did. I was hired uh, to do humanitarian aid in Iraq. And it was was 2007. And I thought to myself, I can't remember how old I was. It was in my late 30s. And I'm like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. And I never wanted to go to Iraq, I wanted to go to Africa. But when someone like opens the door an inch, you stick your foot in and you kick it as wide as it'll go. And so, and it was an incredible experience. And what I was doing is I was running programs, programs and projects over there. And I think coming back to the whole charter reform, um, you know, when I'm running programs and projects, for people that are supposed to help people, I think the input of the people that I'm trying to serve is super, super value valuable. And if someone came to me and they said, you know, I don't think this is quite right, I wouldn't blow them off. I would listen to what they have to say. That's what that's what being of service is about. Has anybody done that ever? So oh, yeah. Like, I, so when I was in Sudan, I had a team of like five and, and I was talking about this project with my with one of my employees, Theory, 
And I said, okay, I see this, this, and this. Tell me where I'm wrong. And she's like, you're wrong. <laughs> it's funny because I just laughed. And she goes, and this is why. But the idea for me behind projects is that you reach out to the communities you're trying to serve. It should be grassroots. But the issue is that Portland is very diverse. And so you can't just pick and choose your voices. And so there needs to be a diverse... Say more about Portland being diverse, because I think people hear that and they think, well, this is the whitest big city in America. What well, it is mean? a white big city, so why the heck wasn't the Portland Charter Commission 70% white with people who represent Portlanders? It might even be higher than that. Because <laughs> I, mean, I think somebody looked at the demographics of Multnomah County and I think it was almost 80% white. Yeah, no, you're exactly... So, what I mean by diverse is I mean diverse as far in like politically the people here. Portland has always been a very unique city. And Do you I guess, really think we're? Pol- I don't think we're politically diverse. Do you know that many? Re- I don't know that many Republicans in this city. The Republicans I know live in Clackamas and Washington County. I think we're politically diverse on the on Democrat. The, on the, I agree. Yeah. I think we're politically. I think we. This is the weirdest place ever, because we are. The, it's a. It's in general. I'm speaking generally. I'm not saying no Republicans live here. I know they do. It's just, it's not a ton, and in general, in the as far as the cauldron of, of Democrats who live here go, we couldn't be more different. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we are so divided, even though I think so many of us would identify as centrist Democrats, Democrats, right-leaning Democrats, left-leaning Democrats, or or even just plain centrist. Um, maybe we're registered Democrats because we want to say. So if you want to say in anything, we have closed primaries, generally you're registered as a Democrat. But I've never seen so many different Democrats. But also, but look at the political climate. Telling the truth is a serious act of courage in this political climate. Talk about that. What do you mean by that? There are all these false narratives going on in Portland. Like, for example, people people are homeless because of the high cost of housing. Baloney. That is such a false narrative. That is like... Say more. Say more. People are homeless because of poor choices, because they're addicted to drugs. I mean, I think it takes a lot to get kicked out of your housing. And and I don't want to say like, yes, everybody makes choices. Does that poor choices? Does that mean you should be homeless? No, not necessarily. But you hear all the time from people who work with the homeless that they don't want to get off the street, that it's about coming here to do drugs and not living in a community and having to follow the rules that changes the narrative. And you were, I remember you were part of the, cause I was there testifying too in support of your settlement. So you were not only did you have to deal with being the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit against the city, but then once because of the way the city is set up, once the city agreed to, do engage in some kind of compromise um, that was legally acceptable to the parties and to the mediator. I'm assuming there was a mediator involved. Then it had to be approved by city council and it needed to be a unanimous vote is my understanding, right? Yes. Right. And so that's why I went because I thought it was important 
that we make sure that we, I mean, I have a homeless sister. My dad was homeless. I, I couldn't be closer to the issue if I, unless I were homeless myself. And you have worked with homeless youth. So we're, it's not that we're unsympathetic to homeless people, but I just think they should be sheltered. I don't think that they should be rotting on sidewalks. That's not... I used to volunteer with Yellow Brick Road. The idea behind giveaways, like we used to go out with packs. And I mean, I got toothbrushes and socks and stuff. And the idea behind giveaways is that you interact with them to, you interact with people who are houseless to get them to services, not to keep them on the streets. And so this idea that, also I'll tell you another false narrative. If we don't give them tents, they're all going to Die. When did we start handing out tents? Because I've lived here for 20 years and I have never seen tents before 2020 that I can remember. Maybe the occasional tent. My understanding is the tents started with Occupy. Uh, well, uh, when they took over the park, um, the activists who started Occupy, you know, they were using tents and then, and in all these cities, they were using tents. And then my understanding is they, of course, a lot of homeless pe- pe- street people joined that movement because it was a community. A lot of them were young people. Some of them had drugs, et cetera. They were, seemed like they'd be, you know, they had food that they were willing to give away. And eventually when they left and went back to life, um, the people who were involved in the occupying movement, they left their tents for homeless people. And then of course, as you know, Tiana, because of your lawsuit, um, (laughs) the county at some point became involved in handing out the purchasing and handing out these tents and tarps. Yeah. So, but Portland, Oregon used to have a very symbiotic relationship with its homeless population. There was, you know, you knew there were homeless people who I knew who I would see on a pretty consistent basis. Some of them are still, Yes. Amazingly around. But they weren't camping in people's doorways. No, and no. They weren't, the ones I see don't. Right. They weren't setting up tents on the sidewalks. And and now all of a sudden people are being, att- I mean, I had never heard of someone being attacked or threatened by a homeless person until recently. That's a, that's a new development, I think, since 2020. Maybe it's happened before, but now it just seems to be a a regular occurrence. And then this whole idea, you hear all these activists saying, these tents are life-saving. Well, if they were so life-saving, how come we weren't doing it for the past 20 years? That's a false narrative. And I got to tell you, those coronavirus friends, they had the least, they were so unrestricted. The amazing things we could have done with those funds. And what does Multnomah County do? Oh, we're just going to hand out tents and tarps. I mean, they could have brought in some brilliant young go-getter who could have come up with like a really good program. Instead, they're like, oh, let's hand out tents and tarps. I mean, like the lowest hanging fruit. And you actually went through their tent and tarp documents, did you not? Oh my gosh, I would not. If I were their grantor, I would have fired them a long time ago. I've seen better documents in war zones. That's what I was just going to ask. I remember you saying that. And say more about that. I mean, what was the difference between, let's say, the disarray of documentation that you saw in a war zone versus what you saw from Multnomah County? Well, I had four pages of questions and nothing was consistent. There were no. And but I also haven't looked at their entire grant. I asked for a ton 
I asked for their log frame because normally when you have a grant, you have goals and objectives that you need to meet and that any of your activities have to roll up into those goals and objectives. I asked for that. I asked for their claim forms. I wanted to see their original grant application. I didn't get any of that stuff. But, well, first of all, they they changed forms in the middle of it. Uh, These were handwritten. You know, the last war zone, so I was... um, I think it was 2017, I was running audit teams inside Syria from Turkey. You can actually, you know, you can like electronically pick up it. So like if, if you if I had given out a tent, I could electronically put it in my system, immediately go into a system. And then all the data that we were collecting went to Georgetown. My data analyst would like compile it, send me stuff. We usually talked at midnight and I'd be like, I also need to know this because I was monitoring programs and projects, the same thing. And these were handwritten records. Also, who are these nonprofits? Are they really nonprofits? Because there was one called C3PO. I've never heard of a nonprofit called C3PO. And I had four pages worth of questions that never got answered. Also, like there were days when you couldn't tell if there had been 10 tents distributed or 20 tents distributed or how many tarps were distributed. There was no rhyme or reason to it. There was no organization to it. I'm pretty sure that some of the people who are distributing tents aren't even legitimate nonprofits. So why do you, why do you say that? Because you couldn't find records of these. Well, like al- some alleged... of them were just people's names. Wow, just an individual. Just an individual getting yeah. paid by the county to distribute. I don't know if they were getting paid or they're just getting tents to distribute. I mean, that's those are the questions. I mean, after going through and literally after my. So you just ended up having more questions. You thought this documentation would answer a lot of your questions. It just raised more questions. I had four pages worth of questions. Four pages worth of questions and anomalies that I sent back to the county and never got answers on. Four pages like, why does it say this here? On this day you said you distributed this many, but it looks like you distributed this many. Or like at the bottom, like they had these check marks. They'd be like, five tenths and so then I'd add them up and their addition didn't meet my addition I'm like okay so I'm adding up 19 tenths but but you say that you've distributed 22 down here and so it was just I mean it was a little bit it was a lot disconcerting a lot disconcerting and you know what was even more disconcerting so I wanted to find out who in DC is in charge of the coronavirus funds I think I made 10 or 20 phone calls, never received a call back. The woman who's on the final rule and her phone number, that goes to nothing. And so I don't even know who in D.C. is monitoring these grant funds. And these are, we are talking millions and millions and millions of unrestricted funds. I mean, I've never seen such unrestricted grant funds in my life. They don't even have to adhere to the Buy America rule. What What is that rule? That uh, everything you buy has to be American, or you have to be, uh, you have to be, or you have to get a like a waiver, or a something? waiver. Yeah, and so normally, like the tents that they purchase would have to be manufactured in America, or the tarps that they purchased. And you're saying you couldn't even tell if there was compliance. Well, the Buy America rule didn't even apply to these grant funds. I mean, I mean, these were unrestricted grant funds. They could have done amazing things with them. 
I mean, these were... Well, you could have driven the vaccine. I mean, they could have driven the vaccine door to door to elderly people. They could have. They could have they done that. They could have administered they could have all the shots. They gone to shelters and they could have put up cubicles or they probably could have done negative air pressure in the shelters or something. They could have done huge building projects. I mean, this was... Yeah, I mean, the possibilities were endless and we're like, uh, yeah, we're going to hand out tents and tarps. It's just like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Like, I, I just think about that. I think about the program that I ran in Iraq that taught 10,000 women how to read and write. And then the program that I taught that helped start a civil rights movement for people with disabilities that was like maybe $200,000. It was so successful. And how much I would have loved to do that program. And then someone in D.C. is like, that's not what Iraq needs. This is what Iraq needs. And so instead, it got thrown under the bus. And... I, I just, it's just, I just can't believe that that's what they chose to do with those funds. And I know that they did other things with those funds, but I don't know what they did because I can't get the grant application, you know? Oh, you can look it up. Well, I don't know about the county. No, I look- For the city, you can look. I mean, the city is kind of incredible what the city spent their money on. What the city spent their money on? Well, it was on. mostly- Do I even want to know? It was mostly- Nonprofits like one of them was AJ McCreary's nonprofit who ran against Dan Ryan called Equitable Giving Circle. But what was the project she was doing with that money? Well, she said that she was um, that that she was assisting connecting black people to black farmers. Okay, great for food. And so, where her grant reports, where her claims, where is, and who's running these grants in the city, you know, and why, like. All you, if you Google it, at least for me, I didn't spend a ton of time. You'd probably know how to find it better than me. But all I found, what she was also doing Zoom meetings about how paperwork is white supremacy that I did find. So we also spent money on that, public money. Um, well, I sort of have to like agree with that because I hate doing paperwork. I don't know if it's white supremacy. Maybe it's just uh, terrorism. Maybe maybe paperwork is just terrorism. I mean, that's. I mean, I'm I'm not so interested in what the city was doing with their grant funds. I couldn't find. I googled a lot on Multnomah County, and I couldn't find their grant application. I couldn't find their log frame. I couldn't find their. But maybe the argument is, well, yeah, we're not doing paperwork on any of that because that's white supremacy. I don't know. I don't know. I didn't attend the Zoom meeting. I mean, maybe we should publicly request all those records because, I mean, if you're not having paperwork and you have a paper trail and you're not meeting your goals, I mean, somebody should be held accountable for that because that is those are taxpayer dollars. As far as I know, both this neither the city nor the county keeps data or metrics on the programs they're funding. And who is being helped and to what degree those people are being helped, as far as I know. Where is this? So is that our taxpayer dollars? Because if those are federal grant funds, then that's, I mean, for a federal grant, for a federal well, grant. Well, federal money is taxpayer dollars. Well, it is. But like, so, but I mean, if, if they're collecting them locally, I, I guess what I'm saying is that. No, I don't think they keep data on anything. I don't. I don't think the city or county keeps. I mean, you saw it. I don't think. I my guess is you. Yeah, I don't think you saw any clear metrics about who was being quote okay, unquote, if, sheltered by tents and tarps. If, who specifically is getting these? If those projects are funded by federal dollars, they have certain requirements that they need to meet, and if they're not meeting them, 
I mean, this I know about federal funds. And I read that final rule and it was long. It was like 200 and something pages and I took notes on it. But of course, I think as we've learned, there's been a lot going on with those federal COVID funds. Like to the, if, if, if there were any fraud, if there were, it wouldn't be the first time that there was fraud with COVID federal funds. I get that. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. it's okay. No, I, I just think there's there was a phenomenon with these COVID federal funds, and nobody was nobody. The fox was watching the hen house or something. Like nobody was paying attention to how much money was flying out the door and where it was actually going. Well, I contacted my congressperson. I'm like, who do I talk to about these funds? You know, I, I mean, because somebody in D.C. knows something. I just don't know who they are, you know, and I haven't. Yeah. So, and, and where, who did the metrics go to who and did who the prepared the to? metrics and where is the data being kept for all of this? And that should all, that should all be it available all be on to the a public. dashboard. I agree. Yeah. I mean, Sharon Myron says that all the time. She says for Multnomah County, you should be able to pull up the Multnomah County website, you should be able to see where every dollar of your taxes is going. And then there should also be metrics about who it's helping and to what extent. Exactly. Hello. No one Thank does. You. No one does this. Yeah. No one does. Well, this. I mean, I don't think you can say no one does that because I think that there are in this city and County and state of Oregon. I've never seen. Well, I know that there are grants metrics. that operate in the state of Oregon that have metrics because I'm not going to, I can't say anymore because I don't want to talk about my job. But yes, I know that there are grant funds that operate with metrics in the state of Oregon. Okay. And maybe through those organizations, through their website, we can find out information. But the state of Oregon doesn't have a dashboard you can go to to find out where your money's going. No, exactly. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. it should. But also, like, that. Yeah, I agree. I think that uh, I, what I'm saying uh, what is, I want yeah. is my my taxpayer dollars. If my taxpayer dollars are filling f- are, are funding Reimagine Oregon, I want a report on how many people they've helped, what got paid, who got paid, what that money was spent on. I mean, what did we buy like forty dollars of paper towels, or you know, and that and that should be common sense. I. I agree. And what's weird to me is there are so few people demanding that. <laughs> it's very strange. Uh, I agree. I think I think there are a lot of Portlanders who are disconnected. And for a lot of reasons. I mean, and I think, so let's talk, like, so the city council had questions about the public charter. Avalos gets all our people out there. Right. And Candace Avalos was on the charter commission who came up with the charter plan that was ultimately passed by the voters. Right. So if that was my program, I would have been like, these are great questions. Maybe we do need to relook at that. And it should be a gigantic red flag that they're like, how dare you touch this? This is a sacred cow. How dare you question us? If you truly serve the public then you care about what they care about. You want to answer their questions. You want to be open to that. And you also also recognize that, um, that, I mean, that should be a big, huge red flag to everybody that the Portland Charter Commission is treating this like a sacred cow. I mean, are they, were they appointed to serve us? 
Who were they appointed to serve? It is our civic duty to be educated voters. It's not just a right to vote. It's your duty to vote. And I remember being in Sudan during the election. People walked hours, stood in line for hours to vote, and then held up their purple finger to show that they had voted. And here in the States, we're like, I just can't be bothered. You know, some people are like that. Um, We should be getting super high voter turnout, and people should really be paying attention to the issues. For me, as soon as one side gets super loud, I start trying to, I, I actually look for the other point of view. I do too. But it does take work. And I think it's hard because I don't know how these people, when I was in the middle of the lawsuit and I had to show up to testify at city council or go to an all day mediation meeting, I had to take time off work. I do have a disability. I know that 70% of people with disabilities are unemployed, but I do not live a different life than my able-bodied counterparts. Talk about your disability and how it affects your life for a second. I, so my disability, how it impacts my life, well, it, it's hard for me to say anymore because it's been 35 years that I've been disabled. So occasionally, like, I have medical appointments, but it doesn't impact, I don't know, how does it impact my life? It takes me longer to do things. Well, you were a Paralympian. Uh, I was a Potentially, parent. you could have been an Olympian. <laughs> I don't think I would have ever been an Olympian. <laughs> I think that I hit my... I was... Uh, in junior high, we had four basketball teams. We had an A, B, C, and D team. Want to guess what team I played on? You didn't play on D. I played on C. Okay. And okay. I got well, you're very and tall, I, I, and you seem very athletic. Well, I got better, and I made varsity in high school, and I also did there track. And I played a year of college ball at Pacific University. It was a Division three school, but I didn't hit my stride with wheelchair basketball it, with basketball until wheelchair basketball. And you're not. What's interesting? You're not in a, a wheelchair today. Was that through what physical therapy or what changed? So when the car ran over me, it broke everything from my left hip down, and it had. Uh, crushed the muscles in my lower right leg and they were in there and they were dying and so for the first week that I was in surgery almost every other day and they were going in to find this dying muscle and remove it what they'd done is they cut my leg open down both sides it's called a fasciotomy and so I was in surgery almost every other day for them to remove this dying muscle that was become infected and they had to amputate my right leg above the knee which was not a good option because my left hip had been fractured now, they didn't pin my left hip because I already had a femur rod in it, and they thought I'd be okay. Well, that's a whole other story. I'm anyway, so sorry. Anyway, so um, I lost 40% of muscle in my lower right leg. So I'm an orthopedic injury, and it broke my left hip, broke both my femurs. I have two spots where skin and fat and muscle died on my left leg that had to be removed and skin grafted over. I tore everything in my left knee. I have what's called a deranged right knee. There's nothing left in it. It's bone on bone. Broke both the bones in my lower right leg. 40% of the muscle was moved in my lower right leg. I have peroneal nerve damage. Can't feel anything from my left knee down. I severed my peroneal artery. Had to be repaired with a vein graft and uh, I broke my big toe. And so it just took a long time, four years of surgery and physical therapy. I've had 36 reconstructive surgeries to piece things back together enough so that I could then start building muscle again and walk. 
I actually walked for my graduation after two years, and then I had a hip surgery, uh, an osteotomy. My hip was, what happened is they had this hairline fracture that they didn't pin. It fell two inches and turned inward, and so that had to be rebroken because it was too young for hip replacement. And so I walked to my graduation and then had the hip surgery that summer and then was back in the wheelchair for two years. And that's why it took me uh, so long That's just absolutely incredible. Well, you know, something happens to you and you either play your hand or you fold. And I just wasn't ready to fold. That and I have a pretty incredible incredible mother. So, yeah. So what would you say to disabled people out there, and maybe they're newly disabled, maybe they're not, who are feeling really hopeless about their lives? It gets better. I mean, when you're first disabled, everyone's talking about body dis- dysmorphia right now, dysphoria. I mean, becoming disabled is all about body dysphoria. Like, nothing works the way you thought it did. You don't recognize your body. Um, so it, it does. It takes a while. My friends told me I was miserable for about a year, and then I started sort of fighting back, talking to young people about making good choices, you know, taking control of my life. And it, it does get better. But it takes a while to adjust, to figure out how to do life. I mean, everything takes longer. People treat you differently. If if you're in a wheelchair, people treat you differently. Like people come up all the time. When I was in my wheelchair, they come up to me like, it's so nice to see you out of the house. What am I supposed to say to that? <laughs> it's so nice to see you out of the house too. Or like side up to you. Like, you know, that knee injury once and you're just like, okay, do you want to tell me about that? Or... Uh, just crazy things like I was uh, I was with my group of colleagues and we were getting drinks after work and I stood up out of my wheelchair to put my trench coat on because if you try and put a trench coat on when you're sitting down very difficult and then in a wheelchair and it gets caught in your wheels and it's just a whole nother uh, and I stood up and this woman from like 30 feet across the room yells I was feeling sorry for you until you stood up and I was like shut up Tozer don't say it I'm like why would you ever feel sorry for anyone in a wheelchair There's a huge, I mean, the city talks about equity and equality all the time, but that doesn't extend to people with disabilities. It's all about BIPOC and LGBTQ. People with disabilities are completely not part of the equity conversation. We're forgotten about all the time. And um, I don't, because we're not considered, I I don't know why. It's it's really weird that you're... You were pitted in this unwilling way, this non-consensual way. You were pitted against homeless street people. So I want to make a distinction between homeless people, who I actually think the city does okay with, and unsheltered homeless people who are extremely mentally ill or in end-stage drug addiction who are splayed out on the streets as you probably saw walking here today and as you see when you go to work and traverse the city to the attempt that to the extent you can with tents full of sidewalks or, or tents all over the sidewalks but um what was interesting to me was with that lawsuit asking the city to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act and keep public right-of-ways clear there was suddenly this argument about who was more entitled to the sidewalk, people in tents or people in wheelchairs. It's called the Oppression Olympics. 
it was so <laughs> weird. I mean, I, the question about legal Americans with Disability Act compliance wasn't even on the table during those testimonies. Oh, yeah. And did you hear, like, every single person with a disability was very empathetic towards houseless people. They were. And the houseless advocates got up there and they like, we don't care about those people. I, I mean, and, and this one. You were being trolled by somebody sitting right next to you. You were being like harassed in, in person. Oh yeah, that Antifa. By some woman who was sitting next to you and didn't, I think she didn't realize you were disabled. Well, she was more disabled than I was. I don't know what it's like to be paralyzed from the neck up, but got to be horrible but you know what i was you so mean intellectually that yeah not intellectual disabilities i'm talking about just right. plain right idiocy right. not yeah but um i was told both in the morning section and the afternoon section this young girl in these probably 80 dollars boots these little ewok buns sat next to me and when i was listening to the camping ban and uh she was like right because there were two sets of testimony Right, that same day, there the was first the morning was to testimony to on approve the settlement. Right, and then the afternoon testimony on the camping ban, and she sat next to me, and she was like, "You racist c-word, you fascist b-word, oh, you'd like them all to die, wouldn't you?" And I just thought, "Gosh, can I have the name of your parents? I can sue them for raising a degenerate." I mean, I don't know why this group of people thinks that it's okay to go to city council and be like, F you, Ted Wheeler, F you. I mean, do they think that changes anyone's mind? Because I, all I got to tell you is it makes me say, okay, I'm voting for whatever they're for, I'm voting against. <laughs> you know? I, I think it's worked for them for a very long time. How has it worked, though? Because well, they, they took over the city for 180 nights plus. They, we basically... By we, I mean council and the mayor basically ceded the city to these people. It is time for Antifa to They really did. I mean, go. they turned it over. Yeah, well. There should have been, I, I, in my opinion, there should have been a request uh, from, from Mayor Wheeler for federal intervention. There should have been a request from Mayor Wheeler from day one for state intervention. We knew this was coming. The minute George Floyd was murdered, we all knew this was coming. Anybody who was monitoring online activities, such as Portland Police Bureau, they knew it was coming. Everybody knew it was coming. Nobody, we, every council and the mayor just decided they weren't going to prepare for it. Kate Brown was, as always, MIA, had no, no, nothing to say about it for nights and nights and nights and nights and nights. Trump finally sends in some people to try to quell this and that's what finally brought it to an end was that they, you know no they didn't want federal intervention because it was brought in by Donald Trump now had Biden sent people in I think council and the mayor would have and the governor would have felt differently but because it was Trump I mean we needed it I remember and and the, and I think part of the issue was it oh it's going to further inflame the more well if you had control over your people well let's talk about like the president of the NAACP here in Portland came out and said, it is time for us to... And so that Black Lives Matter movement was completely co-opted by all these white people. A whole bunch of white like, people living in their yeah. parents' basement. Well, I don't know if they're living in their parents' basement, but... Well, I don't think they had jobs because they were up until about four in the morning every night throwing commercial munitions at the courthouse. 
Well, I mean, I just feel like we should give them one-way tickets to Sudan. They can really see what they're asking for. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think that's what gets to me. You have all these, like, tough people who are like, oh, I'm Antifa, yeah, blah, blah. And they haven't faced any drama and trauma in their life, and so they create it. I, gosh, I am killing it as a cranky old woman. Those youngsters are so, <laughs> so disrespectful. <laughs> well, I don't know that they're all that young. I mean, the the guy that just got probation um, via a deal with Mike Schmidt's, our DA Mike Schmidt's office in Multnomah County, uh, I think it was, what, three years probation? He knifed somebody in the back during the riots of 2020, nearly hitting the spinal cord, barely missed the spinal cord. And he got three years probation. He had prior conviction in his criminal history from another state for possession of child pornography. And he was in his 40s. I've been in three war zones. You would have not caught me dead downtown. Yeah. I mean... That was just chaotic. And also, like, I mean, all the lawsuits against the city, we should sue the, we should sue the rioters because, I mean, that triggered a ton of people's PTSD. It caused huge problems. They don't I have mean, any money, so. Well, then we should give them one-way tickets. <laughs> they were, well, they should have been arrested. <laughs> but, you uh, know, yeah. Mike Schmidt said he wasn't going to arrest them, so that, that was part of the issue. I mean, when you when oh, you're Mikey trying to boy. destroy the when you're trying to destroy the federal courthouse and when you're destroying literally destroying businesses, I mean, when you knife someone barely missing their spinal cord, I don't know that three years of probation is the appropriate penalty for that. Ooh, yeah, you're a Republican, aren't you? I sound joking. like one. I, I don't I'm a registered Democrat, but in Portland, yeah, that sounds. What I just said sounds Republican. It's I think anywhere else in the country, it sounds pretty middle of the road. You know, I actually don't think that's true. I think in Portland we have like this eighty percent silent majority, and then we have this big loud. Look at us, victimization mentality. I think that might be right. And so, like, I think a lot of the, you know, a lot of people are just trying so hard to live their lives and we're yeah, trying they just so want to go to work. They just want to go to work and they just want to live their lives. And pay and their just exorbitant their, taxes. <laughs> and they just want to get their city back. And then you have this small group of people and, and you can't say anything that's commonsensical because you'll be canceled. Do you think you'll really be canceled though? Like, do you think for something like this podcast, I mean, I don't, do you think you'll lose your job? No. Uh, well, what do you mean by canceled? I guess is what I'm asking. I've had people come after my job for telling the truth before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that was also, I was speaking to something that I probably shouldn't spoke. Let me just own something here and have some personal responsibility. Listen up everybody. <laughs> um, you know, I probably shouldn't have been talking about that in a public format. But yeah, I, I actually had a very, actually had a very public person come after me, called me a victim blamer, went after my job. Yes, very much so. It's, and it scared me. And I felt like there was this group of white privileged, able-bodied males who took away my voice and it made me really, really angry. And I feel like the ADA lawsuit gave me back my voice. 
what happened with your job? I mean, did you actually get in no. trouble or? Well, yes, I got in I'm trouble. so sorry. So that's what you mean by canceled. And you've had personal experience with this. Oh, yeah. If you don't, the thing is, is like if there's lots of people I don't agree with, but I think it is so wrong to go after somebody's livelihood, particularly they have a disability and they need their insurance. I mean, anyway, I, so there are people who say, I mean, just they have false narratives and everything else. And even if I disagree with them, I wouldn't try and cancel them. I just think that's wrong. And also, you know, let's talk about that. So we have a whole group of politicians coming up who think that it's okay to shut down other people's voices by trying to cancel them. Who who do you think is coming up that? I think that's a whole wants to cancel people crowd that it's okay if somebody says something you don't like that it's okay to try and cancel them rather than meet them where they're at and actually take down their argument point by point what do you base that on i base that on the public figure that came after me i base that on the fact that um you know, Avalos, if you disagree with her online, she just blocks you. And that you get called a racist if you disagree with her because she's a black Tina. Right. That's how she self-describes. Right. Or, or self But in the end, it's not your label that, I mean, all these people are so into their labels. Well, it's not your label that's going to define you. It's your actions. So you asked me, what would I say to people with disabilities? Um, I would say that it will get better. I would say that you're about to enter a very challenging period of your life, but you will either become resilient, flexible, and get through it, or you won't. Uh, I would say health insurance is catch-22. People with disabilities are trapped between health insurance and trying to work. I mean, when I got my first job and I was going off Social Security disability, they still sent me checks for a year. That's like saying, oh, we think you're going to fail. You know what I mean? And then I would say I was always inspired by Viktor Frankl. And Viktor Frankl said of his death camp experience that everything can be taken from a person except for the last of the human freedoms, and that is the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. And, and so I think I've lived all over the world. I am lucky. I am privileged to be an American. I have seen things that, you know, met women who, I met a woman in Iraq who had her nose and both her ears cut off because she'd been married at like 14 to a 50-year-old man and had an affair. She'll never be able to go back to her village, never be able to live on her own. It's not culturally acceptable. This women's shelter, and they'll never go home, was guarded by a, Kurdish Peshmerga woman, they are fierce. And you know, if you kill a, if uh, in the Muslim faith for the jihadists, if you kill a, if a jihadist is killed by a woman, they don't get paradise. So I just, I love the Peshmerga I didn't know woman. That. That's yeah. interesting. <laughs> anyway, so, and these people who, like in Sudan, like they've been displaced and they're houseless because of a war zone and they're on their last day of food. And I, I think. It's hard to come back to the States from that because when you're in a war zone, you have people who have your back. And here it's like, 
everybody's out for their self. And I, I think this is a huge issue for, for veterans and why a lot of them aren't, why there's a high suicide rate among veterans because it's so hard to come home to this, oh my gosh, I have a hangnail. It's the end of my life. <laughs> Society. Yeah, it, it's interesting to, nobody puts themselves in those shoes and thinks about it in that way and thinks about how, how privileged we are and what it's like to be a free citizen in the United States. I, when I was out of law school, I clerked for a court of appeals judge who's unfortunately now deceased named Bob Wolheim, who was a pacifist and tore up his draft card and didn't want to go to Vietnam. And he was in federal prison until it was overturned. And he used to tell us stories all the time about when he got out of prison and would be, you know, with grocery store relatively soon afterwards. And he couldn't handle the cereal aisle. It was too many choices or how, when he was living at his parents' house, trying to get back on his feet, he was used to being in prison and getting a tray in the cafeteria and being handed food. And he, Anytime he was ready to eat, he would look for a tray. You know, I mean, we just don't think about how to reintegrate people, including people who've served jail and prison time. And we would be doing well by them and ourselves if we could integrate these people back into society. If they do well, we all do well. And that's true, certainly true, (laughs) about veterans who have served their country and the way we treat them is just deplorable. I agree, but I mean, this is a time in in history, and, and here I go with the cranky old woman thing, where I feel surrounded by... Well, you're not, I want to, like, no, people can't see you, but you're not old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I walk like an old lady. Anyway, but, I mean, like, it, like, so for me, all these people are like, this is my lived experience, how dare you? But my lived experience doesn't matter to this generation of who's, you know, the greatest victims. This is the greatest victim generation. I'm not sure which generation it is, but this whole, you can't understand my pain. And I'm just like, okay. I mean, it's just this creation of drama and trauma and no respect for whatever anyone else's real drama or trauma is. And this, sometimes when it bursts out, this song, me, 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 me. And this not putting yourself in other people's shoes or trying to figure out where they're coming from. And this, when did getting like 5,000 likes become an actual like, look, I got a gold medal, 5,000 likes. When did that become an achievement? And, and also, it's just there's this very self-centered time that feels like that has zero respect for anyone else's rights. And, you know, everybody in this, in the States, except for possibly those incarcerated, have the same rights as you. And I think we forget that. Or or you think that that generation forgets that? I don't know. I think that... Or do you think this country and the populace in general? 
I don't know. It's it's hard for me to tell because I don't surround myself with people like that. But I see this whole online community that has that. And then, you know, I, I've seen it. I, I see it in some of the things that I do every day. There's this idea that the world should mold itself to you rather than you should mold yourself you should fit into the world so this idea when gen xers came into the workforce that we had to fit into what the baby boomers were doing well this next generation wants it their way they're the burger king generation or i don't know which if it's the millennials or the gen wires but this idea that okay so like everybody's so easily offended it takes a lot like People are offended by the word that or something. I actually something. don't even think that's the millennials. I think that's like the Gen Zs. I mean, I, I think a lot of us, I'm a Gen Xer too. And I think a lot of us thought as they, as the millennials were coming up just behind it, I'm like, I'm at the tail end of Gen, Gen X. And as the millennials were coming up just behind us, I remember thinking, well, they don't really seem to know how to work. And now that, that they're creating and designing new work patterns and ways of life. And they seem to be doing it in a relatively productive manner. I tend to respect that. And actually some of them are my friends. Um, a fair amount of them are my friends and I, I identify, I have no issues identifying with them. I think, um, Gen, Gen Z tends to be more difficult for me, even though I have a child who's Gen Z. I mean, I just, there's, it's a whole, it's literally a new vocabulary. But I also don't think it's a generational thing. I think because I see it across the generations. Also, I really hate this thing. Of You're like right. Painting, it's not a generational painting thing. Painting an entire group of people with one paintbrush. Because I meet amazing people at all ages. Right. And we talked about um, people in Portland, like who would, let's say, okay, let's say Candace Avalos does. I mean, I think it's. I think it's a done deal that she's going to run for city council. Let's say she does, she, she hasn't formally announced. Um, she's being coy about it. But let's say she runs for city council. You were saying, Tiana, before we started recording, that you thought that there was there were some, quote unquote, white Karens, some white older Karens that would probably vote for her. So they obviously, this spans generations. It does. And I... I I really, truly hate the whole painting of like, like one that a physical characteristic or like your age or like your yeah, skin color makes you one way. Because I got to tell you, that's a discrimination factor in jobs for me. Because, you know, if a person has a bad experience with a disability on the job, they don't ever want to hire another person with a disability. But it's not like that if they have a difficult experience with a person of color they're not like i'm never gonna hire another person of color again but and so you get painted with this entire brush rather than being able to earn your own reputation and you said that after it was after that your you were almost canceled and and your job is at risk that you decided to become the lead plaintiff in this lawsuit and you got your voice back yeah, but I was really hesitant. Talk about really, that. So I had a conversation with... I, okay, so we have to go back to August of 2020. I've broken a bone in every single limb in my body, and I tripped over the sidewalk, and I fell, and I broke my right elbow. And I was saving my right arm. Like, I haven't broken anything in it, you know? I was saving it. 
And I had to go to the emergency room and had it casted. And I called the city and they're like, oh, yeah, you can file a claim. And they never sent me the claim. And then all the... Ten- what was the claim against the city? What was the I would the just basis? have them pay for my medical bills. What, they, but why? Because the sidewalk had like this two-inch lip on it that I tripped over. And I have foot drop. And I had spoken to someone at the city and they're like, oh, yeah, you can make a claim for your medical bills. And then I... And, and someone at the city told me that. And then I called someone else at the city who was supposed to send me a claim form and they never sent me a claim form. And I'm like, well, this is bogus. And then I think that was August of 2020. I was doing really well with COVID until the riots and violence started. Like I was fine being, cause I spent time on a military base in a container. I mean, I had, didn't have a lot of interaction, so I was doing fine. And then the riots and violence started and I just, it, I mean, it just triggered me. It was just like, I was like, my sit, you know, it was, it, it was just hard. It, it made COVID really, really difficult for me. And then the tents started showing up everywhere. And, you know, three women of color who I worked with were attacked by homeless people. And my city, my city, this young progressive was like, your city? Yes, I live here. It's my city. You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Dedicated, like, my adult life to Oregon. <laughs> anyway, so, and my city being trashed. I mean, literally, like, Portland looked like a war zone minus the tank fire and the the small arms fire in the buildings. And it was depressing and it was spiraling me down. And I started calling Disability Rights Oregon. I must have called them 10 times. I'm like, you really want to call me back? What type of disability rights organization makes you come down to the office to get help? I mean, we're people with disabilities. It's difficult for us to be mobile sometimes, not necessarily for me. Couldn't get a call back. It just felt really super arrogant to me. Called the city. I left messages for uh, Senator Frederick, my Lou Frederick, my senator, Tanya, Tanya, I can't even, Sanchez. Not a call back. Heck, nobody even answers their phone. Nobody answers the phone at the city. Uh, met with some gentlemen who were blind. Uh, got them to testify at the city council about their difficulties, because I thought if I'm having difficulties, other people are. And I did that because I didn't want to put my job on the line, so I didn't want to testify. And then this lawsuit came up, and I was really, really hesitant. I was like, can I have some time to think about it? And I felt it was important. And so despite my reservations, I just kept it really separate from my job because I do work full-time. I am a person with a disability. I do work full-time. Now, you should also understand that most of those plaintiffs get some social security disability. And I was trolled online by this trans woman who had testified against the settlement. And she's like, well, I'm having this accessibility issue, but I don't have a ton of money to hire an attorney. Well, that $5,000 settlement is going to make a difference. I mean, mine's just going to pay my property taxes for Multnomah County, so <laughs> which are crazy for a 1,311-square-foot condo. But they had to figure out how to take that money because they have Social Security disability, and they had to figure out how to take $5,000 without 
disrupting their social security disability. How wrong is that? Yeah, that seems fundamental. That is extremely upsetting and it seems fundamentally unfair. Yes, it is fundamentally unfair. And the voices are so loud right now, but what people don't understand is that people with disabilities are the most disadvantaged minority. And I said that to this young progressive and she's like, well, I'm sure that a disabled person who's black is more disadvantaged. I'm thinking to myself, well, not of their OJ Simpson. You know what I mean? There's this is he disabled? No, he's not. Okay. Well, I mean, I was just You're like, like the- to come. theoretically. Theoretically. I mean, there are there are people who are rich who have disabilities. There are people who are poor who have disabilities. And they're... But this idea that the only thing that counts is the color of your skin or your gender orientation when it comes to being a minority is a little bit disconcerting to me. I think it's important to note that Disability Rights Oregon, who was who you were calling over and over again, who was going to make you come to their office, they did not support the settlement. They actually came out against it. Yeah, they came They came out against the settlement that everybody had agreed to, that the city had agreed to, that, the, that you and, and the other disabled plaintiffs had agreed to. And Disability Rights Oregon did not come out on the side of people like you. Because they wanted to support... So 12% of Portlanders have a disability and they thought they felt that the homeless people with disabilities were more important than the citizens, the taxpaying citizens who have disabilities. And 38,000 of us have mobility, 15,000 are blind and the rest of that 38,000 has some sort of mobility impairment. And then there are all sorts of, you know, mental health issues. But yeah, that was... That made me angry. The whole thing with them not answering my phone calls, I thought the arrogance and then for them to come out against, I mean, they might as well as call themselves the ACLU because they're certainly not defending my rights. And it was disappointing. And it was also, I was like, well, yeah, second-class citizenship when your own rights organization won't even represent you. And they said it was because they didn't want to pit people with disabilities against each other. But that is a classic pity pass. You know, people with, everybody should be expected to contribute to society to the best of their ability. And when you lower your expectations for people with disabilities, that's called a pity pass. Well, and it also assumes that this class of unsheltered homeless people were all disabled. I mean, I know many of them are, but then doesn't that also just beg the question, aren't tents and tarps blocking the sidewalk just as much of an impediment for them as they are for you? It doesn't make any sense. Is, is it more humane to allow people to live in the gutter no. than on the sidewalk? But you're forgetting, like, people with disabilities don't count... Unless particularly they're homeless. white people with disabilities. Unless they're homeless. Right. So, And not homeless, unsheltered homeless, lying What's the difference between homeless the and unsheltered well, homeless? Well, I, I just think it's really important to make that distinction because there are plenty of homeless people who really are, they are employed and they are a paycheck away or two paychecks away from getting back into a townhouse or an apartment. They're couch surfing. We don't see them. We don't see them on sidewalks because healthy, 
functional homeless people who are not in end stage drug addiction or in very severe states of mental illness don't pitch tents on the sidewalk when they become homeless. They move in with their parents. They move in with friends. They couch surf. They move, they move to another city and they might be temporarily homeless. They move to a motel. They, they move into shelters. You're right. I, I was talking to my street roots vendor about that and she said that she had been homeless but she had couch surfed so yeah yeah. there are lots of those people and so when when we talk to like the joint offices or when you talk to um some of the loudest voices in the room they will cite statistics about how many they'll they'll say many and i don't know what the stats are but they'll talk about how you know there are homeless people who have jobs now any of us with eyes and ears walking around as we're stepping over bodies on the sidewalk and tents and, and, and tripping on the sidewalk as, as you did and injuring ourselves badly. I mean, an elbow break for an adult is a very bad injury uh, for a child. I mean, it's one of the few orthopedic injuries that are for children are difficult to heal. That's a very bad injury. So anyway, we're focused on the people in the streets that we see that we have to navigate past every day who are smoking fentanyl off foil and mumbling to themselves and doing things like chewing people's faces to the scalp on max platforms. That's who we're thinking about, but we're forgetting about all these homeless people that we don't see that, that the city and the county, et cetera, are keeping statistics on. And some of them are employed. I mean, they're, they're, some of them are families, um, and they, they tend to be at places like Bybee Lakes Hope Shelter, or they, they tend to be just sheltered um, because they're not in end-stage drug addiction, and they, are, to the extent they have mental illnesses or drug addictions, they're, they're managing them well enough to not pitch a tent on the sidewalk. And so it's, it, I think we need to start asking and demanding that when all these statistics are yammered at us, that they make distinctions between the sheltered and the unsheltered homeless, because those of us with eyes and ears walking around Portland, and it doesn't have to be downtown. It's it's in every quadrant of Portland. What we see are people who are lying in gutters and on sidewalks who are in end stage drug addiction or severe throes of mental illness, untreated, but potentially for decades, some of these people, it looks like talking to themselves in states of psychosis. But we, but we forget these, this other population of homeless people because this crisis of drug addiction and severe mental illness is just so severe and in your face here in Portland. We cannot seem to grapple with how to get people into drug treatment and, and we don't seem interested in expanding drug treatment or mental health treatment for that matter. The only people that are at the state hospital, there was an article about it, seem to be people who've committed really heinous crimes. And and we don't seem to do anything about it until they've committed a crime. Well, but also, like, I heard that the mental health, like, a lot of those spots are being taken up by people who are having, like, fentanyl psychosis or whatever. And so, like, if you have a long-term mental illness, it's really hard to get in there. I'm sure that's right. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I just... I, I, I don't, I mean, I haven't studied it enough to come up with a project or program or an answer, but. Well, there are plenty of states who do it well because you've traveled and you've been to other cities and you've been to other states and they don't look like this, right? 
throughout the United States? I have. Yeah. But do they, do they look like Portland? Well, Seattle does. Part Parts of Seattle do. Yeah. Where else? What else looks like Portland? San Francisco. Okay. What about New York City? One of the biggest cities in the world. Does it look like Portland? I don't think so. I haven't seen pictures. Okay, well, it doesn't. I can tell you it doesn't. What about Chicago? You've been to Chicago? That's a big city. I used to, I graduated from University of Illinois. Yeah. I haven't, I mean, I haven't been there since. It doesn't look like Portland. Yeah. Idaho, I mean, Boise, Idaho, I go there all the time. It doesn't look like Portland either. Any, anybody who travels throughout the United States or the world for that matter. I spent a month in Cairo. It doesn't look like Portland. It doesn't. That's very true. Portland. But I mean, Cairo, you, you wouldn't even be allowed to. To sleep on, you wouldn't be allowed to pitch a tent on the sidewalk. You know what? You're I mean, also not allowed also to like do this, that in New York. And also, you're also not allowed to do that in Florida. You're not allowed to do it in Beaverton. They passed an ordinance. You can't camp. See? And they just passed it in June. I mean, there are places that don't look like Portland. Now, in I, fact, most places don't. I hear what you're saying. So I'm, I guess my question is, is I felt like I went overseas and came back and things were okay and Portland had changed a little bit. But I mean, when did it start to go in the toilet? Well, I mean, I have a theory, but what's your theory? Well, I want to hear your theory first because okay. I'm still trying to figure it out. Um, so I'll tell you when I first started noticing it and then I'll tell you about a conversation I had with a, a guy who was way more clued into what was going on in Portland politics than I was. Um, I started noticing it in 2016 when our then mayor, Charlie Hales, rolled out what he called a safe sleep program. And what he said was, you can go ahead and bed down wherever you want as long as you, it's basically what we have now, bed down wherever you want and be gone by morning. And I knew because of my experience with a severely mentally ill dad who was homeless, now dead, a a severely opioid addicted homeless sister, these people don't know what time it is. Anybody who's interested in, have you ever tried to sleep on a sidewalk? Sober people don't sleep on sidewalks. No, I don't think that... If you've ever tried to, anybody who's laying down on a sidewalk... They don't know what day it is, what time. They're not oriented times three. So I knew that program was going to lead to people laying down wherever they wanted and they would never get up. There was no enforcement mechanism for this alleged get up and pack up in the morning. And what it led to, and the the people who've come on this show from Lentz, that that poor area, they they have been so put upon... The Springwater Corridor and that Lentz multi-use path was filled with hundreds of people sleeping in their public parks, on their public bike paths, on their public walkways, their schoolways, their bus routes. Suddenly, it was almost like overnight. Yeah, why? Because... I heard a woman who works at a homeless shelter, she goes, I don't even recognize the people who come in. I got to say, when I did outreach to the homeless youth, I mean, I knew people. And so where did all, where did they all come from? And is it the drugs that brought them in? Well, we don't know because we don't ask that question when we do, say, the point in time count. And, and that is the only metric we have of homeless people. The city and the county are not keeping their own metrics about homeless people. But the point in town count and is... And by homeless, I mean unsheltered yeah. homeless people. The point in time count is done by the county, though, right? Well, but they're forced to do it oh. via the feds. That's a federal requirement. 
And everybody agrees that it's not reliable because it's based okay. on homeless self-reporting. So the, so the, um, so it happened with Hales. What made Hales decide to do that? Do we know? I have no idea, but I, I just, I, so to me, that's when I noticed it, but I talked or I recently spoke with a guy named Fritz Younger who was a very successful uh, contractor, architect, remodel type guy. And he had a very successful business and he was very active in trying to reclaim the city from the Occupy people who he felt had destroyed, who did, I mean, they did, they destroyed large parts of the city. Those, those parks downtown near the courthouse were so destroyed. They had to be fenced and Mm -hmm. then we had to pay to clean them up. And it took the better part of a year to get all the debris out. And Fritz would say, Fritz Younger would say it really started then. And when I think about it, he's right. I mean, I mean, it didn't become the phenomenon that it is today. I think so without what Charlie year Hales, because I want to say that was sometime in 2020 when I remember the occup, like that port, that park downtown. Well, that was with the nightly riots and everything, wasn't it? Um, Occupy was October 2011, so it was it was way it, it really predated 2020 by okay. by a lot. Hmm. So that 2020 was, was the racial reckoning. I would say. And then, and then Occupy was, was 2011 and man, that went on for a long time. I mean, that went on for until it got really cold. So it went on for, it seemed like a long time then. Now it seems like nothing because we had 180 plus nights of riots I remember in 2020. Where I was in 2011. I think I just got back from Sudan. So maybe I was trying to re reintegrate. Yeah. It be, I mean, it just, it began as a protest and it turned into all of these people living you know, homeless and not, um, living on the street in tents. Mm-hmm. And then of course the people who were the activists, but were not interested in sleeping on sidewalks for the rest of their lives, um, gave their tents to people in who were severely mentally ill and in stage drug addiction. And that took to, according to Fritz, that was kind of the beginning of the end. And I see, I do see that. And I Where's remember Fritz that now? Is he, he is here? now in Colorado and he's very active in the movement to try to keep the decriminalization of drugs out of Denver. And he says Denver is, there are parts of Denver that are trying to go crazy, but he said it's far, far, far better than Portland. He was losing his mind in Portland. He did not want to leave Portland. He left Portland because it just became politically untenable for him to live here or else he was going to end up in a straitjacket is basically what he told me. And then he, he read, um, Michael Schellenberger's book, San Francisco. He connected with Michael Schellenberger, which is how I ended up connecting with him. Michael Schellenberger ran for governor of California and started a coalition that I'm part of called North America Recovers. And that's how Fritz and I met. And I didn't know him when he lived in Portland, um, unfortunately, but I connected with him after he moved. And he's, I mean, he's a really interesting guy. And now he's just really working hard. And he has a great cautionary tale about living in a once beautiful city that, that went to hell. I'm just not ready to give up my city. There I go again with my city. It is your city. You should say it. Your friend Piper would be like, you're a city. That, yeah, she, that's a woman on, on a very vocal woman on Twitter who's. Um, yeah, she also to say told she's me, far left is probably an understatement. Uh, she says she's an she's into anarchy, but I don't really think she knows what that word means or has ever experienced it. But um, yeah. Um, 
Well, say more about, about giving up your city, giving up on your city or get, I mean, why haven't you moved? So I keep saying this over and over again. I don't think people are hearing me. We have a large disability population because we have public transport. This is a great city for people with disabilities. When you, when you have a disability, there are two things that are, are really important. is health insurance, and that sort of dictates the rest of your life, but then also getting around. I, particularly if I don't start losing some weight soon, I'm going to have to have a knee replacement. And so that means I won't be able to drive. And so maybe I'll be back in a wheelchair. Maybe one of these days I won't be able to walk again. I need to live someplace where I can function without a car. And for me, that was Portland. And if you live in the right place in Portland, and I'm probably going to get canceled for the right place. If you, you know, you have to choose where you live carefully. And, And I thought that, you know, I have a beautiful condo. It's funny because there are three retirees in it, one millennial who lives down below, and I'm basically the president, treasurer, and secretary. <laughs> so I was just like, uh, yeah. Um, the millennial thinks she lives in an apartment. And she's always like, you're so disrespectful of my time. And I'm just like, okay. <laughs> Why would she say that? Uh, because if I, I tried to... Uh, she's very entitled, and she... Uh, she thinks that she's the most important person. And when I need to get into her condo, we have this plumbing issue. I need to get in her condo. And, you know, as long as you're doing something for her, it's fine. But then if you need something that's for the best of the condo, then it's, then it's, you're imposing on her time. And so she doesn't realize that she lives in this, um, connected unit that, has to function alongside all these other units that she, she thinks shares. She lives with. in an apartment. Yeah. She thinks that I am there to serve her. Yeah, that she's she's a she's a tenant with rights. That's what she, that's <laughs> yes. what she thinks. Yeah. So she's a yeah. It's it's been a yeah. I think uh, like it's so that anyway. So I was thinking when you said people don't know what time it is, I was thinking about the retirees I live with. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, or my mother. Like my mother calls me asking for a recipe on my way over here, and I'm like, okay. And she's like, what day is it? <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I mean, sometimes I feel like that. I don't that unless I'm dating court documents day to day. Sometimes I don't. I feel like they run together too, especially if I'm really busy. But I I wonder if um, I wonder if the ability to access transit for you has changed given things like the Gresham Max platform incident where a guy's face was chewed to his skull, the toddler that was pushed onto the Max tracks, the Donald, the retired university professor who he and his friend were beaten so badly they ended up in the ICU. I think he was waiting at a bus stop or something and he, and he ultimately died. Um, all the fentanyl smoking on the max. I mean, has this changed? Has has the use of public transit or your ability to use it changed at all? I haven't been using it lately because I'm working from home. But I have been thinking about buying a taser, um, just so I can feel more safe or have a have something to protect myself if I if I uh, run into something like that. It's not it's not an ideal situation, but. Yeah, I, uh, 
it just, there's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a better way forward. And I, I don't understand. It's just so factionized. And I think, you know, if Disability Rights Oregon had come to the table, they could have helped solve the situation of sidewalks, maybe in a way that was mutually beneficial to the homeless people with disabilities and the people who are home full, or however you say that, who are housed with disabilities. But it seems like people are drawing some really big lines in the sand. So for me, democracy is about compromise. And that's why the settlement, it wasn't everything I wanted, but democracy is about compromise. It's not about yelling and screaming and having tantrum until you get your way. And there seems to be this group of people who thinks, particularly the, the Portland Charter Group, they were out there yelling and screaming, it has to be our way, no other way. Well, that's not democracy. That's authoritarianism. Authoritarianism. It's not compromise. And this idea that you can't cross the table, like I worked with the Republicans on victims' rights. Do I agree with, with all their views? No, but we have to find places where we can come together. And we have to quit canceling people simply because they're a Republican or they're a Democrat or... I'm a fanatic against fanatics. I think both the far, far, the far right and the far left need to just go away, both, both sides. And I think we need to bring common sense. And my father's side of the family are Trump supporters. Do I hate them? Has it, like, broken up our family? No. Because I'm also that person who, and I'm probably going to get canceled for this, I understand why some people voted for Trump. And I was really angry at the Democratic Party because I didn't feel like Hillary Clinton could win. Seymour, what, what is your theory behind why people voted for Trump and, and why is it, what enabled you to understand that? Was that your family members? I think, well, I think that Hillary Clinton was a candidate that had a lot of baggage. And I do not think she was the best choice for the Democratic. I think that, you know, I've heard from family members and they, they say, yes, he's a jerk, but if you listen to his underlying policies and this is why I voted for him, you have to listen to people. And I think we're so busy shouting people down that we don't even take into account their point of view because their lived experiences don't matter. And I mean, my cousin voted for Trump and he and I are both sort of just, <laughs> and we have great conversations, usually not about politics. Now, one of my uncles is a conspiracy theorist. So I try not to talk politics with him. <laughs> Probably but, best, but I still love him <laughs> because he's my uncle and he has, you know, People, there are always going to be things you don't like about people, but there's usually something of value in everyone. And you can usually find something to talk about somebody with, and you can find some common ground somewhere. But 
we're so busy painting people purple because of one point of view that we don't get beyond that to really bring everybody to the table for a solution. And I think what people don't understand is diversity is more than just people of color, LGBTQ and minorities. It's also like how people think it's, uh, communication styles, it's upbringings, it's uh, people from overseas, it's experiences, it's different lived experiences. That is all diversity. And those that type of diversity is what makes a stronger team. And that I think, I, I don't, I was looking at who is on the uh, Portland Charter Commission and, and other than racial diversity I don't know what type of diversity they had and I don't think that they're I couldn't find their resumes and I so I'm not surprised they came up with something that well actually I am surprised you know who reinvents the wheel who's like oh my gosh there's all these great systems of city government out there but we're not gonna uh, really study or go with any of those. We're just going to reinvent the whole darn thing. Who says that? People in Portland. <laughs> oh, so I have to tell you about another experience I had. So The Oregon State Legislature? <laughs> the Multnomah County? Actually, I, I don't want to lump everybody together. Jessica Vega-Peterson? Sorry, yeah. what were you going to say? So... The Police Accountability Commission is doing focus group sessions right now. And I signed up to do one. And I got phone calls and they're like, don't do it, Tiana. You'll be targeted by Antifa. You're going to get blah, blah. And I was like, I was like, really? And so I discussed my concerns with uh, the mayor's office and one of his staffers and one of their attorneys. They were very helpful. And um, I went ahead and I participated and I've done a lot of focus groups discussions, but it wasn't about getting my opinion. It was just, just I, I felt like the questions that they were asking were just to verify that what they are doing on the Police Accountability Commission is right. So it wasn't it wasn't like really a focus group discussion. It was more like a ver uh, what do you call it? Not verify us, but um, like a listening session or a well, it is a listening session, but it wasn't asking pointed questions. Well, I guess there's a difference between a listening session and a focus. Well, this is a focus group. group session. They were asking like specific questions, but literally it was supposed to be for two hours. And I think they asked six questions. I think I did a lot of talking. Not many other people did a lot of talking. It was supposed to be people with disabilities. They didn't even verify if people had disabilities. Uh, there was some victimization going on in there. Um, and I got paid $200 to do it. They're going to spend $40,000 on these listening sessions. And then who came out and, oh, Carmen Rubio asked for more money. And I said, well, well, maybe if you want more money for police accountability, you shouldn't have done these. She asked for more money? Well, it's in the Willamette Week today. She I wanted, haven't seen it. It's like, and I thought, well, maybe if you need more money, you shouldn't have done these focus group sessions because I'm not sure what you get out of them. And then, like, I also want to know is how did they choose those people? Why am I being to, paid $200? Which, I, I mean, is great. It'll go to pay my Multnomah County taxes. <laughs> but it, the question seemed... Not like they were gathering information that was going to help them do better or be better, but just to underscore what they were already doing. So there's a word for that, and I'm, I'm missing it right now, to validate them. 
And to me, focus group discussions are about getting people's opinion, finding out how the program's working, finding out what they know. I mean, they did ask us what we knew about it. And I had heard that the Police Accountability Commission is just a group of Antifa sympathizers. So, If you look at their webpage or if you go to one of their meetings, I... I mean, I've been to the meetings. I've seen the web pages. I have heard them speak. I haven't heard anything certainly pro police come out of any of their mouths. And in fact, at one of the meetings I was asked, they were asked point blank if they believe that the police should be abolished. And a very, I think she was disabled. She may have been in a wheelchair. I'm trying to remember. I don't remember exactly, but she, and she was very smart. Um, but she clearly had, um, she has a political ideology that differs a lot from mine, but she was smart and interesting and she's on the police accountability commission. And she said, she answered the question and she said, we've never asked any of our members whether they're for abolishing the police. But she admitted, I think if she said this commission, the whole point of it is to consist of people who feel over policed. I mean, that kind of says it all. It does. And how is that accountability? I mean, how? And so like. And and then she went on to say, uh, I think if you took a poll, a lot of people probably would identify that way. And then another woman who's also on this commission answered. I think we probably feel that way, but we also know and I think she was talking about Renee Gonzalez. We also know that there are city councilors who are pro-police and we need and cover. I mean, she didn't use that word. It was a different, it was a different word. She, it's all, it's online. They put all these online, but she used a different word. It was like, we need uh, an air of, of legitimacy or we need some kind of uh, way to explain some, some, literally cover. I mean, that's basically what she was saying. So she was saying, well, of course we are, but we're not going to say that because ultimately whatever we come up with has to be approved by council. And to get it approved by council, we have to pretend like we are being fair. And, and that's basically what she said. How is that an said. accountability in, commission? Yeah, in my opinion, that's what she said. It's not. But and, it, and also, like, yeah. what are their... What are their... What are their um, skills? I mean... Do they have investigation skills? Do they know how to analyze a shooting? Do they, are they psychiatrists, psychologists? So, I mean, if we're going to do a police accountability committee, let's have a Multnomah County accountability committee. Let's just start micromanaging everything, I think. I mean, why not? I mean, I mean, we should, you don't, actually, that's not a crazy idea. We should put that on the ballot. I, I bet it would get enough signatures. We should put that on a ballot like an audit, an auditing committee, an auditing commission. That's a great that, idea. That gets funding, that holds, that, that has some, we, it'd have to have some teeth that is able to hold the city and the county accountable for our use of tax money and demand and receive accurate data at any time we want. And while we're at it, why don't we put a camping ban on the ballot? Because <laughs> if the people pass that, they would have to uphold the will of the voters, wouldn't they? Right. No, that's true. I mean, I think the issue is the reason the stuff that has gotten on the ballot uh, that has ended up there, like the 
Measure 110, like the Charter Commission plan, is because outside money was funding it. Sightline Institute, the Drug Policy Alliance, etc. Democratic Socialists for America funded this last one that, thank God, didn't pass that was going to put a tax on capital gains. Oh, my gosh. You know, I was so surprised that I was so surprised that didn't pass because Multnomah County has never, ever met a tax they didn't like. But I mean, the taxes here are, are, I mean, it's not just owning a home. It's then once you're there, paying the taxes on it. And And it's not even about your home. It's about income taxes. It's about county preschool tax. It's about the, you know, I mean, there's so, the, the homeless tax. Yeah. Corporate activities tax. Which there is should passed on to everybody. I mean, if we're going to micromanage the police, let's start micromanaging our government. Why not? I mean, I'm all for the audit committee. I, I love counting tents and tarps. <laughs> like, but let's, uh, but I mean, if I were going to do an accountability commission, I would have to, it, it would have to be, there would have to be some way to have a wide variety of people on it, even someone like your friend Piper. But um, but people would actually have to have a, a skill set and qualifications. Right, like so, like an accounting degree or be an accountant or be an or auditor. Or be an auditor or an actuary. But then also, yeah, I mean, maybe. Maybe it's not such a crazy idea after all. But also, Portlanders have got to stand up and say, we're done being your guinea pigs. And until they start doing that. But also, there should be a truth in ballot measures. I mean, I feel like ballot measures, how they go on the ballot, are designed to misinform and mislead. And I think a lot of times... Say more. You mean like 110 saying that the money's going to treatment? And then it turns yeah. out it all goes to foil and straws. Yeah, and I can't remember what it was. We were working on the forfeiture law and Przansky, who is my longtime nemesis, along with Joanne Hardesty, uh, changed the ballot measure title so people didn't really know what they were voting for. And I remember being really angry about it. I can't remember what it was. See, memory's the first thing to go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not, well, not in my case. My knees are the first thing to go. But it, And also, like, quit with the... The muckety-muck language. Let's speak in terms that... Let's speak in plain English. Say say more. Like, how would you do it? Hmm. I would... Okay, well... I don't know who chooses the current... I would have to look into who currently gets to approve ballot measure titles. But I think there should be truth. It should actually reflect. Like, it's not like, you know, I can't label this bottle of water rubbing alcohol because it's not. It's bottled water. I can't label it uh, something that it's not. And so, or even like misleading. I don't know how you'd put a misleading label on this, but just that it should reflect what it's really about and then that it should be not... Lawyerly language, it should be, no offense. <laughs> None taken. I'm subjected to those jokes every day, yes. Well, and they're well-deserved. They're well-deserved. And I mean, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be in, in, and I don't think it is crafted in legalese. I think you're right. I think it's whoever is crafting it is crafting it 
in a, I think in a slanted way. Yeah, but who is? I, I mean, don't so know. for me, I guess I, I would need know. to know who is it's crafting a great it question. Who, and who gets to approve it. And then also, also, I think that um, we need to know more about the judges who are on the ballot. I write in for judges all the time because I'm going to vote for something that's someone that I don't know anything about. And some of them don't even have their pictures or even a statement in there. But we should be able to see their records and what they, you know, how many felons they let out or. I have that problem, too. Yeah, there's no metrics on judges, and there's nobody keeping metrics. Well, there's somewhere. You just can't find them, because last time I was voting on judges, I was, like, looking for their... I was looking for their uh, opinions, and I just I couldn't even well, find sure, them. Well, sure, can, you can find... Well, trial court judges don't tend to write opinions. That's an issue. Um, appeals court judges and Supreme Court judges write opinions so that those are easier to find. But for trial court judges, you would have to do a search through the database and you can search that judge's name and then you would have to do work. You would have to, you would have to do your own work, adding all that up and that, and they see so many cases, especially criminal cases. Um, at least at the court of appeals, when I worked there, that we didn't have certiorari, so we couldn't decide what cases we took and what we didn't. And the criminal stuff was called the bucket. There were so many criminal cases. So you can imagine how many criminal cases are flowing through. I mean, probably not as many because of Mike Schmidt. So why do you even bother to elect judges if we have nothing to measure them on? You know, a lot of places don't elect judges. They're appointed. And the judges that I've worked for and the judges that I've been in front of say they much prefer that because it doesn't make sense to pull your constituents and then adjudicate things the way your constituents want them adjudicated. I mean, judges are supposed to follow the law. That's the way it works. So um, I think people in Oregon, though, would be potentially myself included. I don't know. It depends on who it is. Um, would be very skeptical about the kinds of people that might be appointed by, are skeptical oh, about people that true, are appointed I mean, by the governor, are skeptical about people that are. Okay, but let's maybe like have a, a baseline that if you're running for office, even if you're not running against somebody, you have to have your picture in there and some information about yourself. I, I wrote in, I, I write in people for judges all the time, which I know just creates problems for the election office because they have to deal with it, but either give me something to go on or I'm going to write somebody in. Why, why is it that you don't move out of Portland? You should see my condo. It's like, I've worked really hard on it and it's beautiful. And you could have a beautiful condo in Boise. Um, that's too close to my mother. Eight hours. <laughs> Don't you, you get me wrong. You have a beautiful condo almost anywhere in the United States. I've worked hard to build a life here, and I have a core group. We call them the Tozer Gang, and they're uh, amazing people. And I, I guess, you know, I've built a life here, and I thought that this is where my life is going to be. Now I am thinking about potentially retiring in France because I lived in France when I was sixteen, and. My French sister and brother now have kids, and so I actually have nieces and nephews, which my brother here failed me on. But I need to be close enough to my parents to... Can you get citizenship? I don't know. I haven't even looked into it. I don't think you can just move to France. (laughs) 
Well, I'm sure I can't just move to France, but I'm sure that I can. If you could, we would all be doing that right now. No, 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 you can. I've met expats there and I think I have a good case because I have family, you know, I have family there. But it's something I haven't looked into. But I do think that you you're can. doing quotation marks with your hands. Do you I'll mean be, literal family? No, my French family. I but, mean, yeah. yes, I know. I know that you can. But like the people that I know that have moved there, like they worked for the State Department at one point, or they um, purchased property, right? And they owned it for years and years and years and decades, and then they they were able to show that they had some kind of um, they were employable, and they had they weren't you know they had some kind of interest in becoming a citizen. Yeah, well, I would, I would show, I mean, I'd be interested, but I think that there are people who live all over the world who are still Americans. Like, I've done it. I, I think it's incredibly difficult to okay, retire. Okay, like talking about my dream Europe. here. Look, I think you could retire to Mexico, no problem. But Europe, I mean, I don't, I don't, I think that's, I, I think because, because it is, um, a great place for people who are of retiring age, unlike the United States, which is just incredibly oppressive and expensive. Well, maybe, but I'm, I'm going to go. I, and think- if you, I, I want you to continue on that French dream. And if you make it there, let me know how you, let us all know how you did it. Cause are we'd like to follow, we'd like to follow in your, we'd like to follow in your footsteps. Okay. But it has to be like, I'm only until certain people because, like, if my oh, friend look, Piper wants to move over there, Antifa's I'm not, I'm not, not going to France. <laughs> okay. You know why? They've probably seen clips of the latest French protest and the way that the police are allowed to behave in France. And it's not what you'd envision. It involves a fair amount of, quote unquote, brutality and violence. That was surprising to me because, you know, in driving in France, I've never even seen a, a police car I have, so. well, I guess I have walking around Paris, but yeah, driving driving around on highways and stuff, you don't tend to yeah. interact with them or see them. That's true. Um, because I can't think of any place else I want to live. Well, I think that's great. I mean, I'm glad you're here. I don't want you to move to France. I think we need more people like you. I think would be I mean, we'd I don't be less move of to a Tennessee place without or you. South Dakota or. I mean, maybe, maybe eventually I would move back to. Do you Boise? feel unhappy living here? I would say, okay, you have to understand. It was a really couple of rough months. I had to work like six weeks in a row, no days off. Just I had this big project that was due, um, and then I think I was spending way too much time on social media. I think social media is one of the worst things that ever it's happened. Very toxic. Yes, it is very toxic, and I need to, I need to shut down, and I also need to not like. I'm a fighter. Like these people come after me and I'm like, and I just need to let it go. So if somebody does want to follow you on Twitter, what's your handle? How do they find you? At Tiana Tozer. And, and, but I've noticed, yeah, no, you definitely, um, and then I'm like, Oh, I should have said that. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're much better at it. You're much better Twitter than I am. Post and ghost. Post and ghost. Oh, that's good advice. (laughs) Post I do not ghost. fight with people on Twitter. I know it's not worth it. And I always tell myself it's not worth it, but that's not who I am. Right. Well, you got to be who you are. Well, I do, but I like to think that I can change. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, I cannot fight. We all hope that we can. And so, you know, we talked about when Portland kind of went to hell. When do you, when do you think Portland took a turn for the worse? For me. For you. Yeah. I don't think I really started noticing the tents until COVID started, but it was the riots and the violence. I think that the there were legitimate protests going on, and I think there were a group of people who were then at night they at would night come were out, co-opting criminals, those yeah. 
protests and, and people are like, no, it's Black Lives Matter. I said, I don't think so. And that was when I started to get really unhappy and uh, started to think that Portland was really going down the drain. And, you know, I have to be honest with you, I did. Look, I was looking at houses in other places. Uh, but it's just hard for me because this is where I imagined myself. This is where I imagined my... This is where I imagined becoming a cranky old woman. <laughs> you know, this is where... Yeah, I bought a condo that I could live in comfortably. I don't know. It's uh, a good question. But I do. I think about places where I would want to live in the United States. I have a dream of starting this program that I did overseas that taught young people with disabilities to advocate for themselves. It was incredibly inexpensive and incredibly successful. And I would love to see USAID do something like that. And I would move to Washington DC for a USAID job to pursue that dream. But I don't, I would have to push hard for that and, and pull out a lot of stoppers and I'm not, I'm not there yet. What, what do you think would push you over the edge to get you there? Well, I don't know. It's really hard because I have this stubborn streak. And so I'm like... <laughs> You're heterodox. You're like, come at me. Yeah, exactly. This is kind of fun. This is, what would I do if I didn't live here? Like, what would I do with my discretionary time? <laughs> if, if I lived in some purple state, what would I have to tweet about? Exactly. But, you know, that's also, <laughs> see, self-awareness. This is a good time. Yeah, no, you know. Showing I, up to city council I, meetings uh, that are this eventful, I mean, you're not going to find this in almost anywhere in the country except maybe Seattle. But, yeah, I had, I mean, I had a, when I was in Sudan, I had a man, an employee, grabbed me by the neck, and I leaned in, and I said, you never effing touch me again. Wow. Like, but I didn't used to be that way. But I think I got tired of being stepped on and ignored. And I also get tired of, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not good at backing down. I, I mean, love that. I think that's but, great. Well, obviously I should. Uh, but, you shouldn't like, be. But you know what? Sometimes I'm like, we you know, need you. it's I mean, not worth the fight though. Sometimes like, you know, you have to pick and choose your battles. And I'm like. Sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. That's right. And I'm like, no. That cookie has chocolate chips in it. Those are not walnuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? That's right. So, and do you think that comes out of not just your, the way you've had to fight for your existence and your rights, really, um, and the way you've had to fight to exist happily in society, but also the way you, I mean, the way you've done all this work in war zones, you've all, you've been in all this conflict. It's like, that's what you know. Do you think that's part of it? It's just kind of, you're, you've, you've been an advocate for so long for yourself. You've had to fight to be heard. 
Um, you worked at a war zone. Like it would be weird. Wouldn't it be weird if you lived, if you really think about it, like if you lived in an, in an, in actually like a purple state, like what if you lived in Miami? What if you lived in a very blue city with like a Republican governor, like a DeSantis type governor, and you, you had things like the Marchman Act for, for street homeless people, where they're, if they're a danger to themselves or others, they really are. They really do have civil commitment proceedings. I mean, if well, you then I'd probably like that, be out working with the homeless population in my free time. And like what I used to do in Portland and finding ways to volunteer to make my city a better place. I, I do... You know, I have been fighting for so long. You're feeling so, you're feeling bored in Portland lately. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm just like, what's what's net? You know, what like what? So you're like, I've got my settlement. What's next? No, no, exactly. No, that's not what I'm thinking. What's the next I'm, city council? What's the next city council meeting I'm going to? It's the charter commission. <laughs> it is. It's I called Dan Ryan today, and I was oh, like, don't back down on this. We need you. But I always try. I try to. You know, I know that I sound very intense and passionate, which because I'm a woman, which means I'm angry. Because if I were a man, I would just be intense and passionate. But I do think that our city councilors do at least deserve. It, we can be angry but we need to be respectful and that has really bothered me but I do think that I've been fighting for so long and I also think as a person with a disability I think I've fought so hard to be accepted you know, I have this incredible resume um, you really do I mean talk a little bit about that and that's it. Now I'm a woman. I can't talk about that stuff. Otherwise, I'm bragging and I have an ego and then I'll get canceled. I want again. I want I want your ego to come through. Um. Well, I'm a public speaker. I gave a TEDx talk. I gave, I gave the 2013 commencement speech to the University of Oregon and got a standing ovation. That was a red letter day. I've really felt at peace. I live for those days. Uh, I am University of Oregon's 2010 Outstanding Young Alumna. I won the. I was recognized with the Harold Sharper Achievement Award for my outstanding contribution to people with disabilities by my alumni, University of Illinois. Uh, I have a silver medal from Barcelona, a bronze medal from Atlanta, and then two other medals. Uh, I uh, sat on the, what was, it was an employment, it was a national employment board for people with disabilities. I have, uh, I used to do outreach with the homeless youth. I coached basketball. I have five national championships in wheelchair basketball. I started this amazing program in Iraq that taught people with disabilities how to advocate for themselves. I actually had the first civil rights march there. Sort of like started this. This is amazing. S- You're still going. Civil rights movement. The women's literacy program that taught 10,000 women how to read and write. Now, I didn't start that, but yeah, it's just like this. these uh, amazing programs. And I don't know. Um, well, I also I'm got, glad that I also got a second place in girls arm wrestling when I was a. Uh, when I, I can't remember what grade I was in. I think I was in sixth grade. So, oh, that and, I love. And uh, I can hypnotize chickens, and I'm a goat expert. I Say grew up more. on a farm. Say more about hypnotizing chickens. Well, you know, I grew up on this small farm in Idaho, and I grew up with this house being built around me. And my parents, we had restricted TV, so I'm also a, an avid reader, and I can read very quickly, and I read every word. I can read like a 400 page novel, like if it's one of those, you know brainless novels in like three hours um and I reread a lot of books and so I just had this really idyllic childhood um and but we were out there we moved out to 
uh, we moved outside of Boise into the sagebrush desert and we had this shell of a house and then we were gonna my parents were gonna finish it themselves and we didn't have running water and the summer that we moved out there they were drilling the well and the we had a few chickens and the well drillers taught us how to hypnotize the chickens and this provides hours of entertainment and you know we had restricted TV like my brother and I could watch my parents watch the news and mash we could watch that and then we could watch one hour of a choice. We each got one hour of TV a week, and then we could watch cartoons till a certain time, and then we could watch Wild Kingdom, Disney, and the Muppets on Sunday. And then we could also, my father was a history professor. He'd probably be the foremost expert on Mao Zedong today. He did wow. Chinese history. Where was he a professor? Boise State University. Wow. And uh, he was also an army ranger. He served his country. That's amazing. Um, and he served in Korea. And my mother is this feisty woman who, I, I mean, I once had a friend tell me that the only time she ever saw me overshadowed by someone else was when my mom and I were in the same room. So, uh, and she's an incredible woman. She had her master's degree uh, in phys ed, and my father died when I was 14. And so I am also the product of a single family home, and I was poor growing up. And I said, I said, I said to my mom, I go, then why were we middle class? She said, we were intellectually middle class. We weren't, you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And my parents, my, like my father bought, brought the uh, the Waji Puppet Theater from Japan to Boise. He wow. st- start, He was on the Greenbelt Committee. He's part of the group that uh, preserved uh, the 25 miles on either side of the Boise River. So I grew up with this sense of service. And also I grew up in this small community. I mean, like, our closest, well, our closest friendly neighbors were like, you know, about an hour walk away, about two miles, like through the sagebrush desert. But it, I had chores, like I had to do, I had to do all the family's laundry when I was six. And then I had to wake up and milk the goats and feed the chickens when I was younger. And so my brother and I, we just had to find, because we couldn't, we read and, and we, our reading wasn't restricted, but you know, you can only do so much reading. Our one sort of, my dad had to have a swimming pool and that was sort of our one sort of luxury item. And my brother and I spent hours playing badminton and we play croquet until 3 a.m. in the morning because out there, you know, there's... That's so cool. Yeah. My bro- and then I finally realized when I was older that my brother's my best friend. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I want to throttle him, but yeah, he's still my best friend. I hate it when he says, breathe, Tiana. I just want to reach the- <laughs> Is he on Twitter? Does no, my brother hates social media. He's <laughs> barely on Facebook. My brother collects signed first edition books, mainly wow. sci-fi and fantasy. He did 30 years in the Coast Guard in his retirement. He works, he retired at 52 in his retirement. He works part-time at Trader Joe's. He doesn't have any children. My mother has no grandchildren because she didn't behave when she was younger. I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so... Uh, that was my upbringing, and I was really fortunate, and I didn't know we were poor. I mean, my mother did make my own underwear, and this was totally fine. They were very comfortable. She was an amazing seamstress. That's amazing. But then her mother had given her this entire bolt of purple-flowered carnation material. So when in junior high, all my underwear started being the same color, <laughs> and so I'd go change for... for um, I would go change for, you know, gym, and they'd be like, geez, Tozer, don't you ever change your underwear? <laughs> And I guess I was bullied a lot as a kid because uh, I was tall. They used to call me a long-legged moose and because I always had my nose in a book. But it seems like it's different these days. Like it's 
more, I don't know, it's just, it's really, it's really um, intense. And also, I don't know why kids wouldn't be bullied. Adults are doing it all the time online. And that's one of the reasons I use my real name online, because I have to watch what I say. I mean, anonymous, you can say anything you want. And they do. Yeah, and they do. And there are no consequences. And so then we wonder, why are children being bullied in school? Well, it's because this is the example they were setting for them. And don't think they aren't seeing it, okay? Your kids aren't dumb. Well, the president, him, you know, Donald Trump was doing it. Yeah. On Twitter. But I have to be careful, you know. And then my friend gave me the three rules, which was like, is it true? Is it nice? Is it necessary? And I, I'm not following those very <laughs> well lately. And... I don't think I'm a very good social media user. I don't know. I don't know what nice. I mean, I think nice is subjective. Like nice according to whom? Like if if you have a political difference with somebody or you just have a, a you come from a different thought philosophy, what you your opinion is, they might not think is nice. But so. why are we discussing this on Twitter? What can you say of any value in 250 characters? And the only reason I'm on Twitter is because I was told I, I wrote a book which I've revised about 50 times. I can't get it published because I don't have 70 million followers on Twitter. So you know what? Really, all I want to do is get my book published. So if I could get 70... Why don't you just self-publish on Amazon? People do it all the time. Because that to me... Okay, here's where the Tiana... Like... Because I want a traditional publisher. I just... I want my first book to be traditionally published. Well, there are a lot of people who aren't on Twitter who don't who publish books and they're not on Twitter. Well, they say now that you don't have to do that, but I was getting told by agents, oh, you don't have a big enough following or you Just don't. get off of Twitter and publish your book. Delete your account and publish your book. Say I I'm not some- on Twitter. I want someone else to publish my book. I, I know. And they yeah. will when you're off Twitter and they're not <laughs> counting your followers. Lots of people publish books who aren't on Twitter. Okay. Right? It happens every so. day. It happens every day. Anyways, I was being told that I had to have this huge social media following, but I'm really not very good at... Lots of people who have no social media publish books. I mean, if you don't have social media, there's nothing for them to count. But also they, like all, a, they have to look at your resume. Yeah. They have to look at your website, which is impressive. My website? Yes. Uh, that was done by uh, Annalise. She did a great job. Well, it's impressive. Yeah. And what you've done in your life is impressive, and it should stand on its own. But it doesn't seem to because, you know, the memoirs, so mine's a memoir. It's called The Statistic. It's about my car crash. And I actually think I have two more books in me. But memoirs that get published for women is about, I had this really horrible thing happen. Like, look at, um, I had this really horrible thing happen to me. I made these really bad decisions and then I learned this lesson and that's not my story. My story is just the traditional arc. And so, I, I don't know. I guess this is me. This is I'm okay. This is where you can use the word handicap. I'm handicapping myself. I have, I'm telling myself things that make it okay that I haven't gotten off my butt and got my book published. You know what I mean? Well, I just, I, I don't know about get off your butt, but I just, I, I don't no, think Twitter it's should why, be the why reason. Am I, why am I twitting at night when I should be working on my book? See? Good job. You know, there's a really, there is a book that I think you would love called Essentialism by a guy named Greg McEwen, and I read it quarterly. Um, I think it's very helpful. I feel like I need a pen. And I'll, I'll, I'll text it to you. And I find it very helpful. And he talks about um, ordering your life in a way that only, and, and actually there's another book um, 
about stoicism um, that I'll send you to. But it, oh yeah, it, it's Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday. I actually met Ryan Holiday, and he actually gave me his book, and he was a very kind humble man and and, and actually the only reason I met him was because a young woman that I was mentoring really loves his stuff I should probably uh I should probably read it um I don't think I've read the one on stoicism I really like uh if life is a game these are the rules oh I haven't read that it's just a small little book and then I also read Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth and then when the BLM movement became really big, I started looking for other voices and I discovered Dr. Wilford Riley, who wrote Hate Crime Hoax and Taboo, 10 Things You Can't Talk About in America. So would you say that lately those have been the most influential books in your life? Lately, I've been zoning out on TV. Well, I like TV, so you're not going to get pushback from me on TV. Yeah, but I shouldn't spend so much time in it. Um, It's hard for me. I like to, I read to escape. And so I would say my my favorite author and the only author that my brother buys me hardcover signed copies of, and she just died recently, is Sharon K. Pimmon, and she does historical fiction. And... um, uh, one of my heroes, even as a young child, was Eleanor of Aquitaine. Do you know who she is? She was in the 1100s. She was married to both the King of England and the King of France. She was an amazing, amazing, strong-willed woman. And it was funny because I was talking to my French niece yesterday on the phone, and she told me her girlfriend's name is Eleanor, which is pronounced hmm. Alinor. Hmm. And I told her that. And, and then Celia said to me, she goes, I never knew you were a Paralympian because I was talking to her about wanting to go to Paris for the Paralympics. She lives right outside of Paris. And she's like, you're a Paralympian? And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> So it was a funny conversation. Was, and, and so it's a little bit of a fun, but I talked to my niece Celia and she was, it was just so lovely to talk to her and, and she's doing really well. And then uh, her girlfriend's parents invited my cousin and I to stay with us, stay with them because they have a house outside of Paris when we go to uh, see the Paralympics, which I'm super excited about. So I think I'm sort of moving out of my funk, but sometimes I look around and I'm like, what am I doing with my life? What type of difference am I making? Oh, I think you're making a big difference in this city. A big difference. Well, and then I talked to my friend, Kari, who's... She, you know, she's my, I can tell her anything and she's really supportive and not, I mean, I can tell her anything and she's not judgmental. And I said, I said, why do I have to accomplish anything else? Haven't I accomplished enough in my life? And she's like, yes, you have. And then I still feel like this need to accomplish and approve myself. So I don't, that's about my disability and feeling like I am and feeling like people see me as less than. But then people don't even think of me as disabled. So, and why? then okay, why do you let's, think they and don't while think we're of talking about disabled, what they think they don't think of you as disabled because you're not in a wheelchair. Is that what it is? Because I'm not in a wheelchair because I don't fit their preconception. I don't fit their preconceptions that I live the same life that they do. Even though, like, when you're in a wheelchair, people like make a lot of assumptions about you. Like they yell at you or. Just the funniest things, like sometimes. So I used a wheelchair part time for fifteen years. I used to work at Standard Insurance Company, and it's a pretty big building. And so I'm much faster in a wheelchair; like I can zoom all over the place. And so I had my wheelchair there. And I remember one time I'd packed my car to go home for Christmas, 
And I was going to a meeting on the executive suite with the executives, and I walked right by my executive, and his jaw dropped because he never seen me out of my wheelchair. My boss was right behind me, and she goes, "It's a miracle God's touched her. She's cute." <laughs> <laughs> See, and you know that's very funny. But people are like, "You're not supposed to joke about disability." If I can joke about my disability, it's not good for a lot of other things. Well, it is good for parking, but I got to tell you, there's a lot of in my spare time, I do volunteer with a disabled parking enforcement unit. And I ticket people who are illegally parked in the handicap, and that gives me a great deal of pleasure. There's a lot of abuse. You know, nobody wants to be disabled, but everyone wants our, our parking Everybody spaces. wants a permit. That's exactly. Right. And then what really bothers me is the people who park in the wheelchair user only who aren't wheelchair user only. I feel like that's sort of a dish on your own people, you know? That, I never thought about that. That's interesting. Yeah, and then like, I mean, a lot of people, they're just like, oh, I didn't know. And then some people are just like outright in your face. I got chased across the parking lot by this woman. She's like, what's your DPSTT number? And I'm like, try it. You know, I can't run. And she's like, she's like, listen here, blah. You know, she's filming me. And I'm like, (laughs) people are so entitled these days. Like they feel like they should be able to text and drive. They feel like they should be able to run red lights. They feel like, I mean, there's just this lack of community, this idea that, I mean, for me, I'm going to speed through my community because those are my neighbors and I care about them. Right? Why would I text a novel idea? That what's, I know it is a novel idea. (laughs) In the city. Well, Tiana, I really appreciate you coming in. Is there anything you want us to know before we sign off here? Anything you think people should know about you? Or, I mean, I know you've given hundreds of interviews, but what do you wish you, you could say that you haven't said yet? Maybe, maybe, maybe you've said it all. I don't know. Uh, I, I, well, this has been an amazing conversation. You're you're an amazing person to talk to. I feel like I could talk to you for forever. I feel the same way about you. We need to build back our community here in Portland. And that means building back a diverse community, not just based on race or LGBTQI, but based on the ability to come together and listen to other people, even if we may not agree with everything that they think, because that's what democracy is about. And we need we need the silent majority to, to stand up and get involved. We need to fight for our city, and Portland can be a great place again, but we we need to know our neighbors and we need to under we need to to start building community again. If people are listening to this and they're worried about being canceled in the way that you almost were and and having their work disrupted, what kind of advice would you give to them if they 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 don't want to be the silent majority but they're scared? Well, at the least, you could read the ballot measures, inform yourself, and actually come out and vote. That would be, like, the very least, right? And and that's your civic duty. I think we have more in common than we do differences. differences. But right now, we are so focused on our differences. And that has always just really fascinated me. Like a lot of times, like I invited your friend Piper to have coffee with me. I invited this other guy to have coffee with me. I invited this trans woman to have coffee with me and none of them will take you up on it. And I ran into this trans woman who'd been, and I probably shouldn't call her a trans woman because that's probably, I'll probably get canceled for that. Anyways, 
Heather. Ran into her in Winco, and I'm like, Heather, how are you? Do you have anything you want to say to me? Because you know me, I'm like, in your face. Nothing to say. Because there's this, with this veil of social media, we say things we would never say to people's faces. Yeah, I think now, that's I don't right. know. I, I, anything that I would say to someone on social media, I, I mean, I was at a political thing the other night, and this one man was like, we're concerned with homicides. And I said, what about the traffic fatalities? And he's like, we're talking about homicides right now. And I'm like, yeah, because that's not vehicular homicide or anything. Like in a room full of like 50 people, I'm like, shut up, Tozer, shut up. You know what I mean? I think it's great. I think the city needs more people like you. And I appreciate what you, you're doing. I appreciate what you did with the Americans with Disabilities Act lawsuit against the city. It was a long time coming. Um, I can't believe it took that long. I appreciate your courage and your bravery and the way that you've um, been able to create this really beautiful, amazing life despite many, many, many challenges. Um, and I am thrilled that you live in the city of Portland and that I know you and it's been an honor to get to know you well thank you it's also been great to get to know you and I think um I think for me living in Portland is a privilege and I've lived all over the world and I've seen some things that you'll probably never see and I I think I think I, I don't know what it is. It's this open sensitivity. It's this drama and trauma. And it, it, we're so busy being divisive that we can't see the amazing opportunities that I have in front of us. And if we truly, what I would say to anybody who's thinking about running for city council is that true leadership is about service and you serve the people you lead. And it should not be about your personal agenda. It should be about doing what is best for Portland, and not just one section of Portland, all of Portland. Everybody talks about inclusivity, but nobody's inclusive. Tiana Tozer, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. It's been really fun. Yeah, I hope you come back. Sure. It's been a great conversation. Now I got to get that, that book that you Essentialism. Yeah, I texted it to you. Great. Good to talk to you. Thanks again. Thank you so much.